0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
1: would require a greater philosopher and historian than I am to explain the causes of the famous Seven Years' War in which Europe was engaged. So wrote William Makepeace Thackeray in 1844 in his great novel The Luck of Barry Lyndon. Indeed, Thackeray goes on to say, its origin has always appeared to me to be so complicated and the books written about it so amazingly hard to understand that I have seldom been much wiser at the end of a chapter than at the beginning, and so shall not trouble my reader with any personal disquisitions concerning the matter. Well, I have Dominic Sandbrook with me, of course, and Dominic, we relish a challenge,
0: do we not? So we are going to engage with the causes of the the Seven Years' War. Not only are we doing that, we are venturing into a real super league of podcasting um, situation now, aren't we? I mean, we really are now becoming an elite closed shop because our guest... Is not only an expert on the Seven Years' War; he is one of history's absolute elite. He is the Real Madrid of history podcasts. Not that we're not Barcelona, but this is a this is a, this is a podcast in Classico. Yes, it is
1: because we have with us um, Dan Snow, who uh, Dan, I, 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 have you done podcasts before? <laughs> uh, no, this, this is my first. Can you hold
2: hold my head? I uh, I D- myself feel nervous. to death to thrash myself to death doing podcasts, as you want to, because you've been on about 64. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but but more germanely, you are also the author of Death or Victory, the Battle of Quebec and the Birth of Empire, an absolutely splendid account of um, the Siege of Quebec, the Death of Wolfe, all that kind of stuff. Um, so absolutely the perfect person to have on. But also, Dan, it's very exciting for us uh, not just to have you um, – on the show but also to be doing an 18th century topic because i realized that although we've done what Dominic about 40 40 odd episodes now we haven't done one exclusively on the 18th century and i think that's a
2: real gap listeners i am shaking my head with disappointment (laughs) but not but not with surprise because Tom, Yeah, what is it about the 18th century? Sandbrook's proclivity. What is it about the 18th century? What is it about the 18th century? Who would even ask that? I tell you who would ask that. Somebody who <laughs> writes books about the 1970s. Come on, man. <laughs> I mean, I, But I, I, I've given up on you a long time ago. But Holland, I've always seen a spark. I've always seen a spark of recognition despite his... Obsession with the uh, ancient Near East. I've always, I've always deep down known that he's an 18th centuryist at heart, and we could, we could win him over. And yeah. it does get, well, it does get a decent, a decent heft in your new book, which I'm glad to see, Tom. But the 18th century, first of all, obviously the the, the, uh, the important kicker here is that 18th century is steel, the best years of the centuries either side. So it's 1688, 1815, obviously the long 18th century. This is that, this is when it all happens, guys. All these people focus on the 19th century talking about your industrial revolution. When does the, the industrial revolution is an 18th century phenomenon. That's where it begins. Um, there are 17th centuryists now kind of uh, picking up their phones, getting ready to tweet, so don't at me. But the, And, and the, you know, science, as we understand it, Newton, of course, 17th century, but it works in the 18th century. You've got Voltaire, you've got Hume, you've got Montesquieu, you have got Locke, you have got uh, Wollstonecraft. This is when our modern world is being shaped. By the end of the 18th century, you have got a, you know, you've got people suggesting that working people and women should be allowed to vote. You have got a very strong abolitionist movement. The, work, the end of the 18th century has got the same kind of discourse. And the American Republic has been born, the first republic, successful republic, governed by a written constitution. I mean, this is a transformation in the history of the human race. And I always think, you know, this. You've, you've triggered me now guys but i mean you know, yeah he's there, off is, he's off there he's are, off, there, are <laughs> there are you know, like birth of the um what's the starting things in, in the in the 18th in the 17th century uh, and also there's a whole raft as you know of brilliant scholars telling us how fantastic the um, early medieval and medieval scholars were at science but i do think it's fair to say that something quite dramatic happens at the end of the 17th and the 18th we get the we get a recognizably modern world and from the piston, from the train, from the, the, from the piston that drives those trains along at the very beginning of the 17th century, or, the, or, or I should say drives those steam engines along, uh, to landing on Mars and launching a drone is, is a direct, direct line. We're close. An, August, an Augustan <laughs> achievement. So, so Dan, you've, you've listed the amazing achievements
1: of the 18th century, the Enlightenment, the seabed of the Industrial Revolution, of the American Revolution, of the French Revolution. Um, we are focusing on a war. Um, and we're focusing on what is actually a very, very important war, what could possibly be described as the First World War. Um, would you would you view the Seven Years' War as a, a, a conflict on a level with the Napoleonic Wars, the First World War, or the Second World War as one that shapes not just British history or French history or European history, but global history?
2: Much more important than those. Uh, th- th- those. I am <laughs> so more glad a you said that. So. Uh, great claim. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah. The, the first of all, it sees the four great empires the Habsburg, Hohenzollern, uh, Romanov, and Ottoman Empire just falling apart within two years. No, I, I think no. I obviously, uh, I'll row back on that slightly. I think the Seven Years' War is fundamentally <laughs> important. I think it, our, our, look, it stands shoulder to shoulder with those ones in India in terms of the, in terms of the, the, which we can talk about the spread of britishness uh, um uh trading practices, legal practices, language governing practices in India, and, of course, fundamentally in North America. Uh, it gives us a, an English-speaking. We used to be able to say, um, when I wrote the book, we could always talk about like kind of Anglo-Saxon ideas of government, but, of course, now right. that well, is... Let's, yeah, let's not, I don't, I don't want to get... There's <laughs> a way I out know, into that but particular like, uh, that Don't is get cancelled. <laughs> uh, exactly, that's cancelled. But, but it was quite a useful term for 18th century, is to describe an, an English-British way of, of organising societies. Uh, and organising uh, economies and uh, political economies. Um, so I think it's 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 fantastically important. It is, but it is also part of this thing called the Second Hundred Years War, which is much more interesting than the First Hundred Years War, which is this extraordinary global global conflict from sixteen eighty eight to 1815, for global hegemony between, well, remaking Europe, but also global hegemony between Britain and its colonial competitors, in the end, France. And that's a war that ends literally with the Duke of Wellington watering his horses in the Seine and sleeping with Napoleon's mistress. You know, that is, a, that is an, an extraordinary conflict, no less dramatic than the, than the flag that hangs on the Reichstag in 1945, um, and, and one of enormous, subsequent, enormous importance. Is the Seven
0: Years' War a war? Or is it? You know, is it a, the First World War? We know when it started. We kind of know when it ended, although it's slightly muddy. The Seven Years' War is it a distinct war? I mean, it seems to there seem to be different dates about when it started. It's kind of piggybacking on different conflicts
2: all across the world. Is it a distinct thing? Do you think? I think I think you're trying to get me to talk about the Third Carnatic War here, aren't you? Uh, no, sorry, you're right. You're right. It, <laughs> that it, old it, trap. Yeah,
1: Dan. Could we? I mean, could we? Just just for those who are not familiar, yes. there are very few listening who are not familiar with the Seven Years' War. I mean, the the, the, the dates. As in the history books, 1756 to 1763.
2: Although... Well, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Are they... Yes, Dominic, and you're both right. But, Tom, I don't you don't, don't yourself down. There's not very few listening. You've done really well. You, you've, you know, it's, it's, been a, it's been a big success. It's a nice, it's a nice little project for you. And, and I, I think we should wind the
0: honest. podcast up now, Tom. Uh, he's, he's, he's the wrong guest, let's um, be honest.
2: So, so no, the, 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 well, the interesting thing, yes, it, um, it, it is a war. The war in in India it is, is a, a sort of parallel conflict and one that is only very vaguely linked to the war in the rest of the world, and that's where we should point out that William Pitt the older, who was not Prime Minister uh, during the Seven Years' War, he was sort of he, but he was arguably the kind of global strategist, the secretary of the sort of if you like the Foreign Secretary, the person in charge of the strategy. He he had very limited. He did virtually nothing in India. It is you do see the first. British amazingly you see the first British Redcoat Regiment the first British Army Regiment arriving in India in this period to take part and take part very it it plays a decisive role in this war you also see Royal Navy ships in the Indian Ocean but you know it takes months for information to get back and forth so local commanders are acting on their own initiative. For example, in India, you get the Black Hole of Calcutta, we want to talk about that. That's a, that's a war that has, has been going on between effectively the kind of crumbling. Uh, and, and sort of semi-autonomous nawab of Bengal and East India Company forces. When the when the British discover that there is also a war in Europe and North America has broken out, they then go on the offensive. Extraordinary action! The Royal Navy sails up to Chandanagar and and buys a, a very expensive victory, smashing French power in Bengal. So they are related, but they're not all part of one great chichilian war. Rooms. Let's move bits around the map. Sort of strategy. The war in North America is fascinating because it begins. This is unusual. This war is that that. The Great Wars of Europe, the War of Austrian Succession uh, in 1740, the War of Spanish Succession, the Williamite Wars of the 1690s, they tend to begin in Europe. This actually begins in North America. And this is what's amazing about the Seven Years' War. It doesn't last seven years, you quite rightly point out. The fighting has been going on uh, since at least 1754 in North America. And in the Pennsylvania backcountry, this war, the shots that will ignite this global war are fired by a little band of American loyal Loyal colonial troops, loyal to King led George by... II, led by the young George Washington. It's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> it's so exciting. So George Washington is going in, a so colonial mission, uh, colonial militia from Virginia, head in. France claimed the whole of the Mississippi Valley, the, every, all the area drained by the Mississippi, which is a gigantic swath of land. Is that Prager. because they wanted beaver? They wanted beaver, Tom. They wanted beaver. They had the fever, but they, but uh, you know, and 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 it's not the first time that uh, Tom that, is so that, been mate. I know. I, know. <laughs> I, I just I tried to work with that, but I I just couldn't in the end. Um, uh, and and so they, in fact, we should come back to beavers because that's what Voltaire was particularly rude about beavers. But um, it, it, we, they, they they claimed this giant swath of North America, New France. Britain had a tiny little strip, a little little sort of bit up the east coast, the 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 colonies on the east coast. But there were lots more people in them; was very densely populated, Um, and inevitably, lots of those people started crossing the Allegheny Mountains into the Pennsylvania backcountry, knocking into French forts, um, French traders, and you get friction on the colonial frontier, which is uh, very familiar later in the nineteenth century. But this that starts the Seven Years' War. You get fighting between Britain and France, and I've got to say, perfidious Albion, extremely unimpressive. I mean, you get this. You get this. I hope, as you're hearing, by the way, that that Thackeray was completely wrong. The Seven Years' War is very easy to understand. We haven't quite come to Europe yet, but this is, in North America, (laughs) it's quite straightforward. Um, And then we haven't talked about Frederick the Great, which we must do. But uh, in in North America, there is fighting. And then, amazingly, the Royal Navy, France sends reinforcements to North America, and the Royal Navy ambushes them, ambushes them. a a brilliant Admiral Boscarwin in 1755 captures two troop trips and fires on them before a declaration of war. I mean, it's pretty naughty stuff. So we've got India and we've got America, but
1: then we also have Europe. And you mentioned Frederick the Great. And it's kind of interesting, actually, Dominic, thinking about it. In this podcast, Frederick the Great appeared in in our very first podcast. And he's
0: popped up
1: like a kind of spectre
0: (laughs) on the margins (laughs) of various episodes. Yeah. Uh,
1: Yeah. Uh, and he's he's, I, I think I said before that that of all the kind of the the remarkable figures in history that I know very little about, he's the one that I really want to know
0: more about. You keep working him in when he's not. I mean, you got him into you probably got him into the Unix podcast, did you? Did <laughs> <laughs> I think I missed him out on that? But but in in the story of the Seven Years' War, Dan Frederick the Great
1: is the kind of the key player on the yeah. Continental War
2: he is. It's, it's, so tell it's, us about
1: him and how, and what's going on there.
2: Well, you're sounding now like the Duke of Newcastle, who was the Prime Minister in the Seven Years' War. And, well, the, when, when we finally found a stable, when we, when the British finally found a stable governing uh, coalition during the Seven Years' War, very very, very successful administration, one of the most successful administrations in British history, the Duke of New, Newcastle handled the money stuff, uh, he, and, and William Pitt was then free to spend astonishing amounts of money like more money than the british have ever spent before on violence um waging war on several continents the duke of newcastle however said my price for doing that is i need to keep this i need to be focused on the war on the continent so while you're stripping the french and later the spanish of their colonies around the world i need to support frederick the great in europe this is where it gets slightly complicated britain had Hanover. The Hanover. Hanover is this incredibly hard-to-defend state in North and West Germany. The King George II is the elector of Hanover, the Prince-Elector of Hanover. He says to Duke of Newcastle, you can run my administration, but for God's sake, keep the French out of Hanover. I want you to look after Hanover. So Duke of Newcastle says, fine, we will, we will flip this great diplomatic, we have the so-called diplomatic revolution. We will pay the Prussians to protect Hanover from the French, which means, unfortunately, going to war against our... Well, it, means, it means being on the other side from our old allies, the Austrians. So you've got Maria Theresa and, and her Austrian empire, Austro hungary and, and the French, fighting Frederick the Great, who's trying to enlarge Prussia. Over the course of Frederick the Great's life, Prussia doubles in size. Prussia becomes the thing that will eventually as we know, go on to dominate Germany with some small consequences for 20th century history. Um, and, and, and the Seven Years' War is part of Prussia, Frederick's view of an expanded Prussia being tested by fire. The Swedes invaded, the Russians invaded, Berlin was occupied, Maria Therese's Austrians got their act together briefly and were able to inflict a few defeats on Frederick the Great. So Frederick the Great is fighting this unbelievably complicated war um, on all fronts in, in Europe. Funded by the Brits Paid for by the Brits He also dispatches One of his rather good generals To uh, look after Hanover And they do that very effectively And Frederick wins Some stunning victories The reason this war Is completely different To the War of Austrian Succession Which has gone before and, And various other wars For example The French Revolutionary Wars That almost kill William Pitt They're very frustrating They can't find anyone To beat Napoleon On the continent initially What's brilliant about the Seven Years' War for Britain is they are able to do the things they're best at. They're able to send this Royal Navy slowly developing a a a marked uh, advantage over technically in terms of their training, in terms of their tactical ability over their um, competing European navies, the Spanish and the French. They're slowly getting qualitatively better and they're quantitatively much better because they spend more money on it. So they're allowed to go and do that. They capture all sorts of, colonies everywhere from Cuba to the Philippines extraordinary the greatest run of success in British history although with a predictably British slow start which we could also come to it's fascinating there's of second world war Napoleon it was first of all there's always a kind of there's also a warming up period required to the British warfare which is so interesting which has probably got something to the the channel and the space that Britain has to sort of take its time anyway but but on the continent Frederick the Great is able to defeat all comers in the most extraordinarily dramatic series of, of campaigns and so it is it is said at the time that the British Empire in North America was won on the battlefields of Germany. So it's this extraordinary combination. But Dan, we have troops in Europe too, don't we? Aren't they commanded by the Marquis of
0: Gran- Granby, isn't that right? Yes. Aren't all those pubs named after the, you know, he's only remembered as a pub now. But at the time, he's, uh, the, isn't he leading our troops in Europe? Am I wrong?
2: Pub signs are very. The Seven Years' War is more is is more around us than we might think. So you know there there are pub the pub signs the Prince of Prussia the Marquis of Granby all those pub signs uh, are the, anything to do with Wolfe. There were more pubs about General Wolfe in the past, but um, th- th- those pub signs are all uh, yes from from this period. There was a, a battle, a great forgotten battle of British history. It's another one of the we could talk about the year seventeen fifty nine. Annis Mirabilis, the most successful year in British history when the Battle of Minden took place when the French were decisely defeat on the continent but it, it, it was it, there were many british forces there but not under uh, under kind of coalition control this kind of prussian co- coalition um command and and so it doesn't it isn't it's weird it's, it doesn't it's not one of those sort of british battles that really excites but it's hugely important but what it does is it basically pins down french forces in europe stops the french doing what they usually do which is get completely hammered in, in, in the colonies in India, in North America. They lose Louisbourg, for example, the huge fortress sitting at the mouth of the St Lawrence River in the seventeen in the War of Austrian Succession. But then the French basically invade Belgium and the Netherlands and various other places, and Britain, in order to restore the balance in order to kind of compress France into a manageable size. This great and enduring problem of English and British strategy um, makers policy makers um in order to compress france back down you have to sacrifice all these colonial gains the key difference with the seven years war is you can keep more of your colonial gains at the end because frederick the great and this army in in hanover have 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 catastrophically defeated france in europe they've the bit that the french are usually good at they've done badly at so they've got no chips on the table at the end of the at the end of the day okay should we should we focus on
1: the year of victories
2: yeah let's do Um, that
1: it's kind of feel why not good. um so so this is a year of absolutely storming british victories over the french um dan give us all a patriotic thrill by by, by, by <laughs>
0: we don't have any french <laughs> listeners do we tom not that i'm aware <laughs> maybe of maybe not
1: well <laughs> uh, apologies if we do um well not anymore by, anyway <laughs> by, by by going through um the full yeah. scale of, of of what happens in that year
2: so very, yeah so this is, there's is a very odd predictor as I say there's this kind of classic british slow start they 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 lose menorca that uh, what they, well, they and lose that's when in Admiral,
1: Bing Admiral Bing gets hanged to encourage the others
2: doesn't he? well it, it, he gets shot on his own quarter deck oh, oh, yes, Vol- voltaire yes. quips to incur- encourage les autres so to encourage the others um, and, and, it's, and things go badly in North America. The Marquis de Montcalm, you may, you may have seen the film Last of the Mohicans, he manages to beat the French out of Fort William Henry. Basically, there's an invasion corridor between the, what is now the USA and France up Lake Champlain. this wonderful, sort of, it links Albany to Montreal, basically. And so, for hundreds of years, the French and British, and of course, overlooked but fundamentally important Native American allies, have marched up and down this invasion corridor. And it's like a tide coming, sort of receding and advancing. And the French march down, they successfully take Fort William Henry. The, many of the sort rendering Garrison a massacred as depicted and Daniel a. lewis does his stuff. So that's a kind of, uh, and, and Britain also... That's saw, last of the Mohicans and all that kind of Last of the uh, Yeah, I should have mentioned, right, that, that, that dropping Daniel lewis in there was probably um, slightly obscure. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, then uh, Edward Braddock and George Washington again, they're annihilated, one of the greatest defeats in British history in in, in So in George the, Washington seems absolutely terrible. He's terrible, he's terrible. <laughs> he's terrible. Listen, we could do another podcast about it. George Washington. I mean, my God. Yeah, okay. He just what. rushes around, losing battles in the in the. But you know what? He's young, Tom. He's young. He makes his okay, mistakes so early, and he learns a lot. Yeah. He learns a lot. Yeah. Okay, uh, and then he performs reasonably after that. Uh, and he and that should have been the end of him, really. Um, if it hadn't been for the bloody post well, Seven could- Years War fiasco. But anyway, we'll come to that. will we'll come, yeah. we'll come to that, will we? come to that so so then in 1759 everything kind of falls into place and and, and the reason is that it, it, it's it's money it's money it's 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 the it's the giant spending by the british government the famous fiscal military states that the 18th century historians like talk about where these states have come into being very modern states where you can borrow at low interest rates because you've got a faintly reliable the the, the, the lenders are Suitably confident that you're going to get that money back, there is a legal system, there's a political. You can rate, you can seek redress within Parliament. It is far from being a very modern sort of completely, uh, uh, you know, um, brilliant sort of a a very modern uh, state in which things are perfectly transparent. But it is it is groping towards that place. So Britain can borrow, even though it's a smaller economy, uh, uh, it can borrow titanic amounts of money which is unavailable to the french because they're mad uh, you know ancien regime despots who just choose not to pay it back or or spend it on stupid things like enormous palaces whereas whereas the british can say to people lend us money we're going to spend it on ships that will protect trade and you will then benefit from that trade and we will make money on the tax that derives from that trade so there's a there's a system that works so so Pitt and newcastle and the british government are able to send huge amounts of ships and men to all these theatres at once. That's what's so extraordinary about this. They're able to keep the War going in Europe, whilst also dispatching the biggest expeditionary force in in history, really, to North America, um, and and that is that means that by uh, 1758 it comes. There's a bit of a stuttering start, um, but 1759 it all it all comes into place. A young a young British officer called James Cook. Again, interesting character here. Grows up in a kind of illiterate, um, very, very kind of, very marginal uh, family. He goes to sea. Um, on the the coal trade, Newcastle supplying London with coal. This kind of giant industrial city in the south, accessing the Saudi Arabia of energy in the 18th century, which is the coal fields of Northumberland. Um, he learns his trade there in brutally difficult navigational pilotage conditions. He then joins the navy, volunteers to join the navy on the outbreak, and is rapidly promoted. Joins as an ordinary seaman, but rapidly promoted, becomes an officer. So again, the Royal Navy, an engine of meritocracy in this in this period, imperfect but uh, key to its success. James Cook creates the first chart of the st lawrence river The st lawrence river vast complicated river running into the heart of canada the french never bothered they didn't really bother defending it because they said, oh, it's impossible and only the pilots now to get up and down it's so, uh, you know you need the local knowledge passed down father son james cook says no no no. He, he, he creates the first chart and the british astonished the french by by arriving in quebec the capital of their empire in new france in front of the walls of quebec with a gigantic fleet um, and and a and a, a with a huge number of troops on board and stay there the whole summer. It's actually quite a complicated summer, um and it's uh, as as Tom, who's one of the only, who's one of the three people on this earth outside my immediate family that read my book ten years ago, for which I'm eternally grateful. Tom, I've read um, your book, Dan, um, <laughs> and uh, and and so they eventually. It's take... Good. It's a really good book. Come on, why Tom, do you sorry, think nobody Tom. read it? Well, because I have access to uh,
1: data. No, listen, we're not getting into- <laughs> 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 unjustly neglected books. I, I, uh, yeah, I'm no, sure no, this no, exactly. Will, okay, okay you're, it, right, you're right. Up the, up the bestseller list again. Yeah, yeah exactly.
2: Um- okay, so they so they capture Quebec. Eventually, absolute nightmare. Terrifyingly difficult. They almost all die of typhus and dysentery and oh, the rest of it. They all fall out with each other. James Wolfe. James Wolfe is deeply unpopular with his fellow commanders subordinates uh, it's not arguably not really his plan in fact that they eventually land at this, undef- this very lightly defended um, they use they use the, you know it's amphibious it's, it's, it's what Britain does really well it's what they've done well in India it's what they're going to do well in the Caribbean it's what they do well all the way up until deep into the 20th century they do it in China in the 19th century is they use this extraordinary navy and, and the navy we think of the navy sailing around big battleships in deep water the navy this is about small boats in very shallow water uh, penetrating deep into the heart of continents, they land these uh, highlanders and they scale up the heights of Abraham. They catch the French by surprise and they defeat the French army on the plains of Abraham. Um, and it's and and Wolfe is killed. Does the does the thing you always should do in life if you're a commander? Nelson does yes. it. Wellington yep. fails to do it stupidly. Gordon does it um and and he's killed at the moment of victory and he's but he deified. also says these fantastic lines doesn't he
0: what is it uh, now god be praised i can die in peace or something when he's told the french are running before him is this true and you Absolutely. should be paint,
1: and you should and you should
2: be painted looking like a martyr. well he's then painted by Benjamin west who famous he then later paints nelson and that that's becomes i think the most widely distributed image of the of the 18th century i mean it's it become it it is you know as as rural, rural britannia this is a this is a kind of crucible for um a, a britishness that that we, we uh, that we recognize you know this is a, a kind of i tempting to use the word nationalist but that's that 's probably a little bit anachronistic but it's it 's this idea that britain that God was an Englishman that britain I had think. Exactly. And, and we've all read our Linda yeah. Colley yeah. and, and, and yeah. Royal Britannia becomes... And Magna Carta is displayed, by the way, during this period, famously. The, the British Museum is, A, founded. And Magna Carta is put on a huge, big public display in the British Museum. And it's, and it's just labelled as the bulwark of our liberties. Um, and so there's this link between monumental warfare, British success on the battlefield. There's, again, there's an Anglo-Scottish element here because lots of these British troops are former Jacobite soldiers who are now fighting right. for the British crown. So and Highlanders. Highlanders, yeah. exactly. So there's a really interesting kind of int- British story emerging here. Um, and, and then this idea of kind of English, English-British exceptionalism as well through Magna Carta, through museums, all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's really interesting. Then, um the, the 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 most one of the most remarkable moments of 1759, um as well as Fred, by the way frederick the great is at the moment in europe contemplating suicide he's, do, he's doing so badly like, like hitler most, right so so, like, so this is the this is the bit that hitler in the bunker is reading up on frederick
1: the great and getting inspiration from it
2: uh, right because because he he frederick the great had lost berlin by this stage he's lost half his army in one particular battle um it is absolutely uh, he's been crushed, but he's been kept in the field by British money. And then the most extraordinary thing ever, which is the Tsar died, the Tsarina dies, and this new Tsar comes in who just likes Frederick the Great and decide, just unilaterally leaves his alliance with Maria Theresa. I mean, Maria Theresa is one of the most long-suffering and remarkable women in the history of the world. And that's up against some pretty tough competition. And she, as she's on the verge of victory, this idiotic, childlike Russian Tsar, um, reverses... Exactly, he is then got rid of by Catherine the Great, uh, his wife, but not before he's lent a big chunk of his army to Frederick and and basically got Frederick out of the out of trouble. So so Europe's just stable enough for the British to mop up everywhere else. They capture Guadeloupe, they capture a chunk of West Africa, slave trading ports in West Africa, uh, and uh, slave wasn't slave trading, slave gathering fortresses in West Africa, and then at the end of the year, just when things couldn't have gone any better at all. You get this bizarre, you get this extraordinary moment—the greatest naval battle in British history, which people should know about and they don't. It's the Battle of Kiberon Bay, which Sir Edward Hawke, uh, and, I mean Nelson. Dare I okay, listen? I mean, I, I'm I'm a bigger fan, Nelson fan the next guy. I, I don't think he's I, about I, to
0: knock Nelson. I'm about, he's gearing gonna, up to knock happening. Nelson.
2: This is happening. This is this is the excitement oh. of podcast. They're so daring. You just don't um, know, do you? you don't Nelson, know what's going to happen next. Nelson commanded a detached fleet. He was not in charge of the Channel Squadron. He could do what he liked. It was fine. He was in, down in the Mediterranean. He he could take a few gambles. Okay? Sir Edmund Sir Edward Hawke is commanding the Royal Naval Fleet responsible for protecting the British Isles against French invasion. Okay? And yet, and he finds that the French fleet have sailed, they're going to join up with their transports. Big problem with geography, by the way, is there is no port. This is why God is in fact an Englishman. There is no port. In northern France, which can have a large army sitting in it and is deep enough for battleships all to be there at the same time. You have Brest, which is bad, by the way, for the wind, but you have Brest, but there is not enough food in that tiny tip of Britain. You think about where Brest is on the tip of Britain, it's bloody miles away from anywhere else in France. You can't take enough food there. So you've got this permanent problem with trying to invade England which you have to keep the transports containing the soldiers in a different place to the big battleships. They've got rubbish harbours in northern France, which is why, following the Seven Years' War, the King of France decided to try and build Cherbourg as a massive seawall to create a port capable of taking on the British and bankrupt the French regime by doing that. And everyone said he was throwing rocks into the sea and throwing his money into the sea. Anyway, we'll come back to that. So, so this, the fleet has sailed. They're meeting up with the transports. Hawke intercepts them. And in November, in a rising gale in November off a brutal coast of Kiberon Bay, famously littered with shoals and rocks and inlets. Hawke says, Cram on more sail. We are going to sail into Kiberon Bay, uncharted territory, basically for the Brits. We're going to follow those French who, are hiding in there, they think they're going to away from us, as, the, as this autumnal gale is rising, as the sun is setting. And a, at sunset, Hawke scores this astonishing victory against the French. Ships capsizing in the wind. Just br- amazing story in, in amongst and, and, the rocks of Kibron Bay. And Dan, is that like... Is
1: that because it's 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 like um, going up the Saint Lawrence River that the Navy have the charts that enable them to negotiate the shoals, or is it just kind of oh we're going to take a punt on this?
2: Uh, that's so it's a bit of both. First of all, it's it's certainly like the Navy going up Saint Lawrence River, a, a confidence in the seamanship of of your of your naval ratings and officers. What is also happening is for the first successful time in the Seven Years' War, which is astonishingly important and dramatic, a dramatic innovation, is all of the. Again, the modernity of this state, its ability to create systems. You for the first time in ever, you have a you have a successful blockade of French ports. You you, you don't just say we're gonna keep an eye on the French and when they come out we're gonna fight them. You say they will not leave port. We will blockade them in for not just weeks but for months and years. So their sailors will not be trained, their ships yeah. will rot at the, you know, they will lose their morale. This is
1: this is this is the first Yes. Try out of a strategy that's Ex- then used in the Napoleonic Wars, First World War. It's Second tried
2: war. earlier, but after 3 weeks these ships come back, everyone's got scurvy, it's just the crews yeah. are falling. You destroy your own fleet by blockading.
0: That's the problem. Dan, we need to take a break. Our listeners will be they need a they need to have a, a swig of comfort grog or break. something. Yeah, yeah. comfort <laughs> break. And then they can return. <laughs>
2: war and the <on> lemon.
1: <laughs> but, but but I think I mean we've covered yeah. we've basically we've covered the, the the sweep of the of the war. Um And when we come back, perhaps we've got some questions uh, and we can try and put all this in the the slightly broader perspective.
2: When your visitors go for a drink, let them remember the toast of the Royal Navy that derives straight from this period. May our officers have the eye of a hawk and the heart of a wolf. (laughs) A splendid note, a splendid (laughs) note on which to go to a commercial break. (laughs)
1: Hello, welcome back to the rest is history and the Seven Years' War. We're with, with Dan Snow talking about it, um, Dan. So you gave us a brilliant account of, of the course of the, of, of the war, and um, we were majoring on the, the scale of British triumphs. And for generations, these triumphs have been kind of iconic. So we talked about the death of Wolfe, um, Battle of Kiberon Bay, um, also the Battle of Plassey, where yeah, Clive, Clive of India, Clive yeah, of India, kind of basically uh, wins um, as it turns out, India for, for the nascent British Empire so great scenes that have long been celebrated however i think it's fair to say that um the idea that this is uh, necessarily great for the world is is now more contested than it was so that the idea that clive of india has a statue in whitehall there are there are grumblings about it do you think that um that is one of the reasons why the seven years war has has been generally forgotten and and is it kind of now problematic in a way that oh, it Tom wasn't Holland. for earlier generations get a, get the robust voice of, yourself, of middle man. england is is, is <laughs> grumbling away in the background but um i mean that's that's the kind of issue isn't it that that it's it's more complicated now perhaps than it was to celebrate someone like wolf
2: Yes, you're you're, you're exactly right. There are, I think, there's two issues. One is it has fallen out of favour because it was, it has been succeeded by other great wars, greater wars, which inevitably, like the way that Churchill obscures Lloyd George, who obscures Pitt the Younger and, and Palmerston. You know, I think in terms of historical memory, we we kind of only have place for one particular. Uh, uh, kind of na- national in- national military endeavour. And of course, Second World War looms so large today. And I, But I expect that Second World War will go through this process that Seven Years War has gone through. I mean, my our parents grew up, I mean, the Seven Years War was essential. Wolf, I mean, G.A. Henty books, I had a Bizarre upbringing of kind of reading strange Edwardian books that were left around my grandma's house. And, you know, ben, you read... you're not alone. <laughs> well, I think I'm among friends here, but but I was kind of radicalised, and I, I'm I'm having to unradicalize myself carefully as I as I enter middle age. I'm doing the opposite to many people's journeys, but um, I uh, Wolf in Quebec, Clive in India, were foundational stories. People, uh, and and in a way, because they were. I mean, it, it, Wolf's victory at at Quebec in short order, delivered the whole of New France. I mean, very briefly, before the American Revolution, we should remember. I mean, the whole of North America, virtually, apart from the New Spain, which stretched up into... A question from the the, the
1: splendidly maritime-sounding Jacob Hawkins. Uh, If England had lost the Seven Years' War, do we still get the British Empire and all the War of Independence? So let's leave the War of Independence to one side. But the British Empire, I mean, basically, this is the war that creates the British Empire... as we recognise, as
2: as the 9th century, as, as yes, yeah. century understand it, so therefore that's problematic in itself. That's that's not something for unalloyed celebration, which it was a hundred years ago. There is this issue I mentioned Martinique, which is captured, uh, Guadeloupe I mentioned captured, Martinique in 1762, West, West Africa, Senegal. You know these places in West Africa are captured. That's about the slave trade. That's about the slave, the, the trade in enslaved human beings. Vastly and amazingly, amazingly, there's this great moment where France has a Canada or Guadeloupe moment, which has become a kind of celebrated thing in international um, in, by um, uh, international uh, affairs kind of st- um, studies is that they, there's this moment when the French have to decide do they ask for Canada back at the negotiating table or Guadeloupe and they choose Guadeloupe amazingly the yeah. second largest country on earth now with vast oil re- you know incredible wealth and it, it was rejected by Canada people like Voltaire said it was a few acres of frozen snow and it was just the beavers it was just the hats that the, it was the only thing useful for so that, that, and that's because sugar was grown the super commodity of the 18th century sugar was grown by enslaved people on those islands hugely hugely profitable the trade derived the money the trade the the cash flowing into venture capitalist pockets in britain as we have all rehearsed now we all know where the slave trade was hugely important uh, within that development of the early of of 18th century british economy politics society all that stuff so that's why it's difficult talk it's difficult to celebrate we now know more about robert clive i mean he was a he was i'm afraid an unattractive character um, he he uh, struggled he, with the, the his victory, mental health i think
0: that's how you'd rehabilitate sorry, him isn't true? it
2: sorry absolutely that's correct you'd however, say he was
0: a martyr to his mental health
2: that's correct as well however the the a victory at Plassey was not a victory of kind of plucky British spirit against the kind of uh, Oriental um, um, uh, uh, weak Oriental despotic uh, unvirile fighters. It was just a gigantic bribery. It was you know there, there was there was cash exchange between um, rogue uh, Indian um, sort of magnates and the East India Company and, and and people like that. So it is it is harder to yeah of course. Do you do you think there's a case for saying that the the,
1: the the British Empire and the conquest of vast swathes of the world was kind of incidental to the core British ambition, which was to beat the French?
2: Uh, I think it was incidental. This is a, a really wonderful question because it, in terms of in terms of getting territory, as you guys know, painting painting the world pink was always quite unpopular among huge swathes of policymakers. And, and people in Whitehall. Um, it's really expensive. It, you get massive blowback. So for one, one great example, after the Seven Years' War, you get the British government say, right, we might now have conquered technically this bloody enormous area in North America, but they banned their British settlers, their North American settlers, from settling in the back country of Pennsylvania, which is a huge reason for the American Revolution, because the Brits go, the last thing we want to do is control a kind of trans-American state. Yeah. It's going to cost a tonne of money. And the, and, and the locals... Hate us, and you get this Pontiacs so, revolt. You get North American natives fighting the Brits and fighting these settlers, and and you so you so it is that great expression that British Empire in Africa was acquired in a kind of a fit of absence of mind when all they were trying to do was protect the Suez Canal. So I think there is an element that that Europe, the good old fashioned sense of power politics within Europe, and also the British wanted to get rich. And in those days, getting, getting rich had a mercantilist element to it. You ha- it was thought you had to control the islands of the Caribbean to, to take advantage of this trade in sugar. To, it should be British ships carrying that sugar. They should be tr- crewed by British crews. They should use British ports. They should cross ship to other ships that then export it to Europe. So yes, to beat the French, but it was about money and it was about money and economic clout as much as um, as as beating them on a battlefield.
0: But Dan, there's this argument, isn't there? Brendan Sims has this argument, a uh, Cambridge historian, that uh, the way we think about Britain and its world role and the evolution of the empire and the Seven Years' War as a foundational moment in that is all wrong because we're looking at Canada and we're looking at India. And, we, and, and he argues that the action was all really in Europe and that Europe yeah. was what mattered to British policymakers that we've sort of written that out of history and that we're too obsessed with the kind of global Britain Well, and that we don't realise how much the establishment cared about Europe above all. Could I just
1: mix that point in with a question from Stephen Clark, good friend of the show? Did yes. the Seven Years' War establish Prussia as a great power? So that's, well, th- that is always the other aspect of the Seven Years' War to keep in mind is is the Prussian dimension.
2: Well, Tom is... Well done, Stephen Clark, and, and well done, Tom, for that very lovely segue of marrying all everyone together. Sing, <laughs> we're all singing in harmony now, but do, you're Dominic, you're absolutely right. And, of course, what's interesting, we all, in 1910, when the British Empire did cover 20, well, 1920 when it covered 25 percent of the Earth's land mass. Clearly, these campaigns were talking about General wolf in Quebec feels vitally important in that story. Now that we're looking at a Europe dominated by Germany uh, and a world in which the British Empire no longer matters or exists we suddenly think, oh, you know what, maybe that whole Frederick the Great thing was a bit more important than we were noticing, which of course is exactly what King George II and the Duke of Newcastle were primarily focused on. They were focused on the balance of power in Europe. Uh, They wanted to access, they did not want a hegemonic power emerging in Europe. They assumed it would be the French, um, and they wanted therefore Frederick the Great, this kind of useful North German um, counterweight to Austro-French power in Europe. Now, of course, Prussia doubles in size during his rule. Funnily enough, during the Seven Years' War, it actually doesn't. It's more like he's tested by the most astonishing. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, it's, it's more a... He's hardened by fire in the Seven Years' War. He gained Silesia at the beginning of the War of Austrian succession, which actually, as you know, is probably the most important thing ever to happen in the history of Europe, um, because that's where the rot sets in. I mean, if you want to... You know, Russia, Prussia... Also, the end of Austria-Hungary, the dec- slow decline. I mean, him seizing Silesia in 1740 from the young Austrian new ruler Maria Theresa was, is the moment when everything turns. It's the fulcrum. There's probably some Julius Caesar moment you could give me about him becoming Pontifex, whatever it was, um, Tom. But that's kind of the moment. And the Seven Years' War uh, reinforces that conquest. Maria Theresa goes all out. She bankrupt, she sells her jewellery. She goes all out to get Silesia back. She defends Bohemia. But she, And she doesn't get Slazy back. Frederick's allowed to keep his gains in Europe and they will expand as he starts to partition Poland later on. So, so Prussia now and sitting now in the 21st century, when, when Germany is a significant thing and it is derived from that Prussian, uh, that Prussian experiment, that Prussian success in the 18th century, you can say, yeah, we should probably be thinking more about Europe um, than in the Seven Years' War. It, it, I mean, it is amazing to think
1: of that, to think of, of the, the kind of the, the Europe of, of, of today as being set in the Seven Years' War, but also the the, the spread of Anglophone culture, the fact that well, the United States of America speaks English, that in, in India is an English-speaking country.
0: Imagine if Canada was French as a counterweight, as a linguistic, yeah. cultural counterweight to the US, Tom. You know, if there was a Canadian Hollywood that was French speaking, I mean, well,
2: then, like, well, the world would be utterly. The dear. Culture
0: would Do, be so. Yeah. Do, Dominic Sandra, in my sense,
2: is not a fan of the wonderful and very, very dynamic Montreal film scene, uh, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> a film scene of which I was hitherto unaware. Barbarian invasions <laughs> is one of the great films. As a Canadian citizen, I won't know. but 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 you're right. And of course, Bismarck, brilliant. My favourite quote about Rose, Bismarck, the Samuel Rogers: Bismarck, the anglophone stuff. The, 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 the fact that people wazz on about Magna Carta more outside Britain than they do inside Britain. The fact that the Australians, the, the, the Indians, the uh, Americans have got parliamentary to traditions that date... That, that all stem from this fun little island of ours. All of that stuff, of course, is fun. The Seven Years' War makes that very important. And Bismarck brilliantly says at the end of the 19th century, Bismarck, as you know, he retired to his estate. Kaiser Wilhelm kind of kicked him out and he was in a foul mood for the rest of his life. And a young journalist, I think it was, went and said, you know, what do you think will be the most important? You know, when we're looking at the new, the 20th century, what, 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 what is it that will really determine the course of the 20th century? And Bismarck answers immediately the fact that North America speaks English. And, he, and he's yep. exactly yep. right. You know, the, the great, the, the monumental battles of the 20th century, first against um, uh, Imperial Germany, then against fascism and then against communism. Uh, it, is the, it is that coalition of, of, of uh, English speaking uh, uh, right. Anglo- Anglo-Saxon yeah. capitalist economies yeah. that gather together and are able to overcome those. And that, that is absolutely essential.
0: Dan, you are the Arthur Bryant of history, clearly with all this English-speaking democracy. Sorry, stuff. I know.
2: It's, I know. Daniel Hannan is listening, and he's getting a <laughs> serious. Uh, but okay.
0: but <laughs> but but let's just let's but, we're coming to
2: a,
1: coming to a close. Um, so I've, I've got two questions here, both of which. Um, of course, put this back into an 18th century perspective. One of them um, is from Dr. Tony O'Donnell, and he asks, is the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, America's forgotten creation creation myth? Washington and others lead in a war that later taxes sought to repay, and the colonials rejected the cost of their own defence. And then we have a great comment from uh, Jim Zhu. Um, Lord Newcastle was generally regarded as a buffoon in part over his staunch support for the Anglo-Austrian alliance that blew up and dragged Europe into war. 20 years later lord north lost america because of diplomatic isolation who's the greater buffoon in hindsight yeah so i guess both of those that the the roots of the american war of independence lie in the victories that britain wins
2: but two two yeah. revolutions tom right america and
0: yeah, france okay. yeah i yeah, think yeah. we
2: I think that's right, Dominic. I think the, the French go away and decide to try and compete with Britain at sea and, and spend unimaginable amounts of money doing so, like I said earlier, and, and directly contributes towards their bankruptcy. but but uh, But also... In, yeah, the the, 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 the the disaster of the American Revolutionary War is is sort of stems, I think, from two areas. One is that Britain, and there was an active debate within Britain around the peace treaty, is what we don't want to do is become the new Louis Fourteenth. We don't want to be the baddies, you know, that great sketch. Are we the bad guys? Yeah, so so yeah. they were terribly nervous about appearing to be a European hegemon. And I think they largely failed in that because they, they, they thought they'd give a bit more back to France on the peace treaty. That would avoid them being unpopular. They actually kind of failed at both. They neither held on to everything, nor did they stop this overwhelming oppression they, Britain was now the problem in Europe. And so, for example, the Dutch, other European nations, when it comes to the War of Independence, they either neutral, pretty hostile neutral, or they back the Americans. But in a more the direct Portuguese, sense... I, did the
0: Portuguese stay with us?
2: The Portuguese allies. in the American Revolutionary War, I don't know about
0: oh, well, we'll that. we'll check that out. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure they che- did.
2: I don't know. That's the right they question. would never
0: let us down, the Portuguese. They would ne- the Portuguese never.
2: would never let us down, no. Um, and, uh, and, and I think, but, but in a very direct sense, of course... The American, the the Seven Years' War is the American foundation myth because you do that terrible thing, which is you remove the threat. And the American colonies had lived under the dagger of French and Native American, um, Native Americans. Only, you know, miles from the eastern, the big cities of the eastern seaboard. You know, Montcalm comes very close to the big settlements of the eastern seaboard. The French are now gone. Britain controls the continent. The Native American have no allies anymore. They are terribly bereft. And they are then, as we know, an dy- dy- awful story, dystopian story, what happens to them. And so, so there's this great quote from an America, a British governor, of a uh, colonial governor. And he said, you know, what did British gain? And I think he said from the most... Glorious and successful war, which she has ever engaged upon, um, and that he, she gained an empire that, that she was unable to defend, gain, um, maintain, or govern because she was then had this giant empire that she couldn't pay for, and, and Britain tried to tax the American colonists for their protection. In my opinion, entirely reasonably. All right. <laughs> anyway, so they a, a military, fo- a standing military force was now required to protect this giant empire. They, they fell out with the Americans, and the Americans looked around and went, "Hold on a minute." I don't think we need the Brits anymore. Who, you know, we do not need these guys protecting us. We have got all the advantages now of this giant hinterland. Let's shift the Brits. So so in a very real sense... So massive ingratitude. Massive ingratitude. In- Especially huge yeah. ta- ta- tax dodge, isn't it? I mean, that's what it is. Yeah well and and they all the virginia planters i not have to pay their, listeners
0: are enjoying this well all yeah. the all the we just, just lost that 20 percent of our audience
2: a, a, a tax dodge <laughs> oh, no don't worry he'll come back and, and a tax dodge <laughs> uh, it was not only a tax Very dodge good. it was also a a giant debt you know they didn't the the, the, the virginia planters they're terribly indebted virginia Planters london basically went we're not gonna pay our debts now we're going independent so yes it was right and on that somber note that sombre and disgraceful note.
1: <laughs> um, I, I, we've brought the Seven Years' War to an end. We've demonstrated that Thackeray was talking nonsense. Yeah. It's perfectly possible to uh, explain the course of the Seven Years'
0: War. Tom, um, we must Dan, never have. Thacky, we must never have Dan Snow on this program again. That is. That is for <laughs> sure. <laughs> he's been so rude yeah he's been rude about (laughs) rude about our audience no it'
1: more than worth it more than (laughs) worth it dan can't thank you enough um and i hope you've enjoyed the podcast we will see you um next week where uh, dominic i think we're actually doing the french revolution aren't we french revolution and food and food yeah
0: not in the same podcast French revolution is a kind of natural sequel to this so yes um, so what happened next Yes, and, and I think we we'll do that, for that. We're, we're going to do that songs. Just, just, yeah, just us, yeah, just us. <laughs> songs, Dan. <laughs> I'm going to tune into that.
1: That's
2: going to be fantastic.
1: <laughs> Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks very much for listening. We will. Thank see you, you soon. everybody. Bye, bye, bye. Thanks for listening to the rest is history. For bonus episodes, early access, ad free listening and access to our chat community please sign up at restishistorypod.com that's restishistorypod.com